Hello, everyone. Tim K. here to talk to you about our friends at the Mississippi Coffee Lady. Joy Rogers, a coffee connoisseur, is the wife of a Marine Corps officer who personally dedicates herself to giving back to veteran and caregiver causes through both of our projects. She's personally dedicated what I think is her best roast, a flavorful Ethiopian to the project. She's also played a big part in a nationwide care package effort organized by Gold Star wife Sherry Detheridge and friends for the 13 families of the fallen veterans who were recently killed in Afghanistan. To support the project, head over to MississippiCoffeeLady.com to pick up your bag of the Veterans Project roast today. Personally, guarantee it will be some of the best coffee you've ever tasted, and every single penny goes to the project. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to MississippiCoffeeLady.com. Hey, everyone, just wanted to pop in real quick and let you know that this is indeed part two of our two part podcast with Medal of Honor recipient. Kyle Carpenter. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please, please, please go back and listen to that because part two won't make much sense, obviously, without part one. Here he is, without further ado, the lesson on overcoming the one and only Kyle Carpenter. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. And uh, I had only been home like a few weeks, and uh, it was probably nine, ten o'clock one night, and um, I decided to be a big bad marine and uh, undertake the. Um, this is how bad stories get started. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Never turns out the the way it should or, or a good way. Yeah. But um, you know, I tried to. I tried to. Uh, you know proved to myself that I could do it and, uh, you know, uh, take on the task of making myself a bowl of cereal. And at this point, you know, again, it was very early on. I hadn't had my nerve graft repair surgeries. My wrist hung because I couldn't lift my hands because those nerves were severed. My arms had been shattered just a couple months before. Um, and so, you know, the milk felt like it weighed a hundred pounds I could barely open just the box, like the flap at the top. Uh, and when I got it made, which somehow I did with minimal spillage, but uh, after I got it made, I'm sitting there in the dark of my kitchen. The lights were dimly lit. My mom was in the room, 10 feet away in the room, over in the living room. And there's two kind of reasons for my my breakdown in this moment the first is sitting there in the kitchen dimly lit no noise maybe a faint noise of a tv from the living room but it was the first time in three or four months that it was just me myself and my thoughts Mm -hmm. 
it had always been chaos around me. The doctors, the wound care, the surgeries. Um, and just sitting there, it was just me. And it was the first time I kind of like had a, you know, wow, this has really happened type moment. The second aspect of it is I couldn't even really eat the cereal. Like, because the damage to my face, the nerves had been severed. So I, I couldn't really tell how messy I was, but I just knew not, like, you don't realize how much structure and help your teeth and your mouth give you for so many things. And to not have any teeth and to even not really be able to feel it, but know that milk was going everywhere. It was like, dude, a few months ago, I was not only in the best shape of my life, toting a, a machine gun and a thousand rounds through Afghanistan, but, um, you know, now I can't even eat a bowl of cereal. Mm. And for months up until this point, not even being able to get out of bed, I was having to go in a bedpan, laying in my bed with my mom and dad beside me, with a team of five or six corpsmen around me because to do anything, they had to hold all of these different tubes and cords. And so to just feel so helpless, like I can't even eat a bowl of cereal, I completely broke down. Mm. And my mom rushed in and, uh, you know, of course she like immediately just thought I was in pain or something had happened. And, you know, what's wrong? What's wrong? What, what happened? And I just looked up at her and I said, you know, look at me. Who's ever going to love me again? Mm. And, uh, and I hated that I said that and I regret it in the moment because I, I saw that no matter, you know, what pain I was in before, no matter what happened to me, nothing really truly tore her heart in two until that moment when I lost hope in myself. Mm. Wow. And so uh, like the amazing mom she is, uh, she immediately put her arms around me and, uh, you know, she was emotional too. And she just said, you know, someday someone is going to love you for the rest of your life. And this will all just be, you know, a distant memory. Mm. Wow. And so there was that moment. And then in the few seconds that followed, and I, I'm so forever grateful that I had this insight. I don't know how I did probably because I don't break down that much, and I had this super, like, the lowest moment you could possibly have when you lose hope in yourself. But I had this not really epiphany moment because, uh, you know, it was just me and her in the kitchen by ourselves, but just internally in my head, I realized that I could get up and I could take a small step from that counter and continue on or I was going to sit at that kitchen counter for the rest of my life. Mm. And so now, you know, I'm so thankful that I went through that and I, I realized that and I learned that and had that moment because now I can tell people with true conviction and belief and know that it's true because I went through it, I experienced it, that you don't have to be okay. You don't have to know what the next minute, hour, or day holds. 
you don't even have to have that much hope. All you have to do is get back up and take those small steps. And uh, and even beyond that, that if you do that, you know, eventually, you know, just like all good things must come to an end, all bad things must come to an end too. Mm-hmm. And that if you are just willing to get up, to cling to whatever hope or silver linings you can, and to take those small steps, you can not only get get back up after getting knocked down in life, but uh, you can, you know, make it to the light at the end of that tunnel with a smile on your face. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I always tell people that because after events or after I speak or whatever, you know, people come up and they say, oh, well, you know, if it's a veteran or a service member, they'll say, well, you know, I never went to combat or I never did anything like you or I never got injured. If it's a civilian, they'll say, oh, well, I never, you know, joined the military or I've never been hurt like you. And I stop them and, you know, I have to tell them that struggle and what we've been through, good or bad, is the last things we should ever compare with each other. You know, everybody heals in their own time, in their own way. So whether you get up from that kitchen counter and it takes you a few hours to brush it off and to get better and snap out of it, or if it takes you every day for the rest of your life to heal and just get a little better every day, you know, that, that is a victory and that is okay. And that we all heal in our own time in our own way. And that some struggles, some small struggles might be overwhelmingly significant to others. While as, you know, some can step on an IED, become a triple or quadruple amputee, and you'll never see them without a smile on their face. Mm, and so, so true. just don't, don't compare struggles and just know that you know, stay true to yourself, take the small steps, and, uh, you know, just try to be a good person along the way. And no matter what you're going through or how hard you've been knocked down, I promise you can get through it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pause it here just a second. And we're back. <laughs> People are not going to understand continuity. I've got the book here. <laughs> They're like, where did the book come from <laughs> in the frame? Uh, you are worth it. You know, I, I read this book a few months ago, and I was just you know, struck by... We, we talked about it before it was out at a, at a Recon Sniper Foundation party at SHOT Show. You talked about you, you were going to take a little bit of a different shot at it, right? Not so much about the combat side. You were going to talk to people. You were going to talk to everyone through this book and you did and it was excellent but um i wanted to talk a little bit about mindset because you get into mindset in the book of course what for you where was the shift at 
for you when you just, you know, you talked about having to, you know, take each step right every day and, and really breaking it off and giving people a good perspective there. What, what was it? Was it that point that really triggered it for you? That break when you, when you weren't able to get the cereal or when you broke down there at the, at the, in the kitchen? Trigger what specifically? Like as far as you you knowing, once you figured that moment out and got past that breaking point, was it all good from there on out or? Uh, Yeah, for the most part. I mean, the surgeries were still kind of a drag. Yeah. Uh, The pain was still there. Uh, But I I just think I realized in that moment that the more, and I, I say this in the book, but the more that you know, I focused on the past and what was unchangeable, uh, the more it prohibited my future and mm-hmm. my progress. And so that gave me the foundation to move forward. And um, and not that it was in a regretful way, like, oh, I wish I hadn't joined or I wish I hadn't got injured. It was more just, you know, no point. I mean, me, you, no one, it can change or get back one second that has passed. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's obvious we all know that, but we all still focus so much on what's behind us Yeah. or regret or what we should have done different when really we should embrace all of those things, good or bad, learn from them and make you know, the best version of ourselves we can going forward. Yeah. Strides forward. Yeah. Massive. What, uh, how was your, how was your mental makeup, you know, during that? Because you talk about the physical pain and obviously the mental side and the emotional side of that's tough. What were the keys when you were going through your therapy and, you know, getting better and recovering? What were the keys for you mentally? Was it that bite size day by day mentality? Because, man, I have a, Dude, when I was first in college, I almost cried when I got the syllabus. <laughs> like, <laughs> as we all do. <laughs> yeah, true story. I looked. I called my mom up, and I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> Ten exams in one semester, dude. What? Yeah, I know. Every week. <laughs> yeah, I can't compartmentalize. I guess most guys are good at that. I'm not good at it, so I have a hard time biting off more than I can chew. So I will, I looked at the syllabus, and I'm like imagining having to do all that in one day. <laughs> Yeah, you know, right. like upset. But how did you, you know, in, in in a much more stressful sense, and what you were going through? How did you um, do that? And, and and I've got to get better about that too, because even having a mental health partner, still, I still compare my experiences to others. You know, how did you how did you get past that and and, and move forward mentally? What was therapeutic for you during those moments? Uh, so a a few things, um, above all, again, just being grateful that I was there to go through whatever was in front of me. Mm -hmm. Um, another aspect is the incredible wounded warriors that I was surrounded by, uh, to walk out or to open your, your, room door every day and to see warriors with 
way worse injuries than me. And again, not really comparing, but you look at them and you see that they're a quadruple amputee. Yeah. But they are still, you know, with whatever's left of their arm, pushing that lever on their electric wheelchair, motorized wheelchair, with a smile on their face, going to therapy and becoming better. And I, I, you know, that was another thing, like not just waking up, but seeing that, you know, how can I be down if, you know, this guy isn't even phased and he's out there crushing it, jumping out of planes, you know, with barely one arm left. Mm. And just, it was like a react, it was like a perspective check every day at Walter Reed, just recovering with incredible people. Um, another aspect was, um, you know, I think the most simple one was, Hey, I got to do all these things to get out of here. <laughs> you know, ultimately, like if I'm ever going to escape this, this crazy dream I'm in, like I've got to go through all these steps. But, it, it, and uh, another aspect is I don't know or think that I'm that good at compartmentalizing either. Hmm. But I think when you're so, uh, when it's so daunting, what's ahead, uh, or or when it's so crazy, something that you're told for me, hey, you have forty surgeries and three years left. Um, I think something in me just uh, like I could only until I got much better. I could only focus on. That oh man, I got the big arm surgery next Thursday. Like when you got, when you have a crazy surgery on the horizon, or you've had a surgery and you're two months after the surgery, just like watching your hand all day every day, hoping that that nerve finally connects and you can move your hand. Like when you're just so deep in it, mm. and you're hanging on every little micro improvement or that next surgery, or, man, this surgery is going to suck, but if I do this surgery, then the next surgery will be the one before I can get teeth. And so it was always just kind of not really even being able to look that far ahead because I hadn't done the 100 steps before getting to that point. Um, But if it makes you feel better, I was overwhelmed when I got syllabus on the first day too. (laughs) but a a mix of things though a mix of things that makes me feel infinitesimally better (laughs) that kyle carpenter medal of honor recipient was overwhelmed (laughs) by the syllabus (laughs) i thought i was the only one no no man join the club i was sitting in my dorm room i was like god i really hope my roommate doesn't walk in (laughs) we're gonna have to have an awkward talk aren't you like in the army or something? <laughs> yeah, can you, can you give me a hug? I just read the syllabus. <laughs> oh, strange crushing moment there. Um, what you know when you, you were going through all this and you started to get on the other side of things and you know saw those improvements happening. Um, how was it? You know, getting back into or or getting back to as much of a normal state as possible. Uh, did you start school right after? Or were you two weeks after driving out of the gate, Walter Reed? 
Mm. I was walking to freshman classes. Wow. And um, it wasn't hard. I loved it. I welcomed it. I was pumped every single day I woke up. It was like, dude, I was, I mean, even still to this day, I mean, I was, I was, felt like I was living a vacation <laughs> going to college just because the past three years had been so just surreal, so difficult and painful at times. Um, but, you know, I say it's easy and it's it's such a crazy transition to say is easy. But I had three years of sitting in a hospital, sitting in pre-op rooms, sitting in post-op rooms. I had almost an unlimited amount of time to think about where I had been, where, where I'm going after, after I healing. And, you know, I, I had to think about, do I want to quote unquote, hang the uniform up? Mm -hmm. Do I want to serve 20 more years and stay in? Do I want to get out and go to school? Do I want to get out and have a, a normal real job? And so I had had, like we were talking about earlier, walking around in the city. Um, deep thought and, and thinking deeply uh, does wonders for you. Hmm. And because I had so much time to think about all of the crossroads that I would be encountering in the next few years of my life, um, when it came time to medically retire and I decided to get out, you know, I thought about, okay, I joined to commit myself and my life to a bigger purpose. And now, you know, I did that and I did it to the best of my ability. You know, I gave much of my body and I bled for this country. So that coupled with knowing that I would always have that military connection and family after what I had gone through, that I would never be too far away from the wounded warriors that I struggled with every single day. I felt like I had thoroughly given that chapter of my life the best. Mm -hmm. So I was okay with hanging out the uniform. And when I decided that, I knew that it was, I was going to go to school. There was no question. I had promised my parents years ago that I, I, whether it was four years from now or 20 years from now, I would go and I would earn a degree. And most importantly, I wanted that for myself. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the medical board can take six months up to a year and a half. So I knew I was going to have X amount of time. Uh, so the second, uh, started my medical board. I started, I had a tutor, Risa Epling. She's amazing. I still talk to her uh, all the time, but, um, she came to Walter Reed two or three days a week and tutored me in between therapy appointments and all these things, um, that I was going through. So I was doing that. I had a lady from the board of education, Heather Bernard. She's amazing as well. Still talk to her and and good friends with her. Uh, she uh, worked in education her whole life. 
So she started making calls to different schools, universities to see maybe where I would want to go or programs I would want to be in. And so I started working on school. I retook the SATs and uh, I don't even remember. ACT? Uh, I don't remember. What the yeah, I think it is ACT. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I retook those tests uh, to, to try to get into school, wrote admissions essays. So I was doing that. And then I knew that I was going to have more, you know, months there before I got my medical, uh, board results back. And so I did two internships. Uh, I interned on Capitol Hill and then I, um, there was a program at Walter Reed at the time that, uh, if you had, you know, X amount of time left, I think it was like six months or more in the hospital, you could team up with them and they would help find a organization that would in the DOD or the intelligence agency, uh, world that they would help pay for and expedite a top secret security clearance. Mm. But you had to agree, you know, to give at least two or three months to this organization. So I did that. Uh, and I interned at, at the National Counterterrorism Center. No big which, deal. Which, <laughs> yeah, dude, it was so incredible. I learned so much. I had an amazing mentor uh, by the name of Ed Hoisington. And, um, you know, he taught me so much. And that really kind of uh, pointed me in the direction and fueled the fire of um, – not just loving and appreciating on a much deeper scale our intelligence agency community, um, Homeland Security, and all of the people that work exhaustively, you know, with no recognition day in and day out to prevent the next 9-11 and to protect us from attacks, the scary version, almost weekly. Mm. And so that just like, that is what kind of geared my international relations major in school. I'm glad you made that point real quick. I didn't want to stop you, but because there is so much of a threat day in and day out. I mean, you're talking about perpetually Mm -hmm. threats existing every week. And from every angle in every way you could possibly imagine. They're always trying to find a way to get in. Mm -hmm. And it can be from the inside. You know, uh, that's the scary thing about it. So to have those workers there tirelessly working, you know, is just absolutely incredible. For those of the general public don't realize how many terrorist attacks have been foiled. Oh, yeah. Since, you know, I remember when 9-11 happened, it felt like a big iron curtain came down. Um, I remember feeling vulnerable. Yeah. 14 years old, man. Yeah. I'm feeling vulnerable. Like, I remember my mom saying to me, like, oh, no, we're not safe anymore. Yeah. And that, you know, maybe not the best thing to say to a 14-year-old. She was dealing with her own grief, you know. Yeah. And I understand that. I'm sorry, Mom. I just made fun of you. Um, anyways, she's used to it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but she, you know, th- that moment, you know, she was making a very real statement of like, a, a, you know, something, an enclosure that we felt, right? Yeah. 
a blood wall, yeah. um, you know, perpetuated by the sacrifices of our men and women in past wars. Yeah. Uh, there was a tearing down of that curtain and it felt like for the first time, wow, we've got a problem on our hands. Yeah. And so for that community to step up that way and he's, you know, decades after now decades, right? 20 years, uh, just absolutely impactful and incredible. So you got to experience the inside of that a little bit and see what goes into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that's gotta be amazing. It was just. It's, I am so, I mean, top five experiences of my life. I'm just so really? thankful for that. The people that, that so selflessly gave their time and energy to teach me, knowing that I was only going to be there for three or so months. Um, and they, uh, yeah, I, I think I gave a really good effort, my best effort, but I think I was a pretty good intern. So they offered a full-time position if I wanted to stay and uh, the pay was not bad, um, <laughs> but dude, I just wanted to be normal, to uh, go to school, and to 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 can't make up for lost time, but to start enjoying my life as much as possible and kind of doing what I wanted to. I mean, yeah. I, besides, since high school and since joining, like as you know, I mean, you sign on the dotted line and you're told when you can go home for vacation. I mean, you have to request to go more than, I don't know what the out of bounds is, but if you're wanting to go 60 miles away on the weekend, you can't do that unless you fill out an out of bounds, which no one does, but you could, <laughs> you could uh, I mean, I always did, but you you didn't probably. But, nah. I mean, you have to request permission to anything. I mean, boot camp, you have to request permission to go to the bathroom. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, ironically, like, as a service member, and when you commit to serve and sign on that dotted line, most of your freedoms are revoked. Yeah, yeah. Even your freedom of speech. Like, you can't give your uh, political thoughts nope, on things. you're right. You, it, it, if you don't like the president, he's your commander-in-chief. Dude. Too bad deal with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Or you're going to prison, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and so I just wanted to, to just start living my life. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, I like what you were making that point there because, uh, even my life was so regulated all throughout, you know, my parents were pretty strict, great parents, loving parents, uh, got an incredible relationship with them now. Uh, but then, you know, getting into college, uh, playing baseball still, man, regulated. Everything, right? Movement. I'm practicing four hours a day, lifting weights. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Army, you know, being in. So t- really till 25, man, I mean, in my master's program, uh, I really had that same kind of segmented life where I'm having to do everything, you know, a certain way. So I know what you're talking about, enjoying. And obviously you were in a pressure cooker for those two or three years, too, being yeah. wounded, you know, having to ask permission to do anything. Yeah. Um, your body not even granting you, right, the the ability to do that. Yeah. But I, I experienced it on a certain scale where I felt that final freedom push and being able to actually do what I wanted. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. you took that time, man. Because yeah. it's necess- I think for mental health, that's oh, huge. Oh, absolutely. You know, what happens if you go directly into a CIA position where you're dealing with threats every day or a position in counterintelligence or whatever you're doing? I mean, the stress of that, you, you just got out of the loop. Yeah. And you're going back into a loop. To not even be able to decompress. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, great points. And, um, you know, but with all that said, I had three years 
-hmm. well, two years after I got out of like the immediate, I hope that I'm still not going to die because I'm so banged up phase. But like I had two years to think about where I was at. And again, like where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do with my life from that point on, what I wanted to do after recovery. And then I did those internships to not only stay busy and not just like sit around and play video games all day, waiting on my medical boards to come back. I, I, I wanted to do them. I wanted to learn. I wanted to better myself. And I had the opportunity. And also I had been at the hospital for years. Like I wanted to get out if I could. And so I, I did those for many different reasons, but they also played into easing me into that transition. So even though I was going from three years in the hospital to school and civilian life, mentally, I had planned and thought enough to be confident in not only my transition, but, you know, what I was going to do from that point of transition on. Mm. And really, I mean, honestly, I was like, Dude, even if school sucks, even if I don't want to do it or finish, like nothing can be worse than the past three years. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't too tough, but you know, I could. That's the truth. <laughs> you know, it, I, I uh, even been going through what I've been through, I can't really empathize, but I sympathize in the most like non babying type way with veterans that say they're in four years and a couple of deployments or an entire career, like to be an active duty Marine or service member. And at 8 a.m. the next morning, you get your DD-214, which is your paperwork that says, thanks for your four years. You, you're Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. You're free to leave the military. And, you, dude, in one moment, you become a civilian and your entire world drastically changes mm -hmm. from the past four years that you've known. Mm -hmm. If you have a family, you have to find a job that financially, you know, will allow them to live comfortably and give them a house. And, you know, the military, listen, people, you think we join for money. That is not true. The military, you no one's going to get rich <laughs> or, or ball out in the military. So it's not that you need this high-paying job to continue that. You just need a job. Right. And you need a sense of purpose. You know, it's not like, oh, well, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to knock any job, but take take whatever example. Like, oh, well, you know, you can just go do that. Well, yeah, I could do that, but I would probably be in a really bad headspace and not do well and not be good for myself or my family because just because I'm making a paycheck doesn't mean I'm getting any sense of purpose. Yeah. And so there's a lot to navigate and think about to, to make a smooth transition. So it takes a lot of work, and I'm sure... You know, there's a lot of scary, uncertain moments in a transition like that. Uh, so I can't imagine. But as crazy as my transition and my my hospital time to civilian time in school was, like, 
it's just uh, I had the time to mentally prepare, so I don't think it hit me as hard because I had thought about exactly what I was getting into and whatever came my way. I had thought of a thousand different things of how I would either handle it or, you know, how it would be okay no matter what. I don't want to miss that point that you just made about <clears throat> purpose. Yeah. Gosh, isn't that such a killer? Uh, I think we're losing a lot of our guys yeah. to that. Right, that lack of purpose. Mm-hmm. You're going 100 miles an hour down the highway, and I, I had a friend, uh, Burke Koontz, who was a special forces medic who now owns a company um, called Bison Union, out in Wyoming, and and he uh, explained it to me. He said I was going 100 miles an hour, doing the most high velocity stuff on all the important teams, you know, supporting counterterrorism across the globe taking out the bad guys, doing my job, and then I'm sitting in a classroom and I'm hearing a girl that's complaining about her Cancun trip. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And he said, and so it was like full, not only a full stop, but he felt like in a way a, a regression. Yeah. And he really struggled with that. And I think that you don't even have to be an A-teamer to do that. And you can be admin and a, or working in a supply shop, any one of those jobs. They're all important. Yeah. We all, we, beans and bullets. You need it all. Yeah. You got to be able to sign on that dot. When you sign on that dot line, you had no idea what you're going to get. So I, I want to be very respectful to every other MOS because Lord knows I joined as a cook. So when you're, when you're doing those jobs, it's very important that – or, or when you're when you're getting out of the military, it's important to know that there will be that period, yeah, where you're done, and and, and that purpose is gone. So, one of the interesting things that I discussed a couple of days ago with a buddy of mine was thinking about that before you get out. I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out. This is gonna happen. I need to start. So maybe working on that purpose beforehand, thinking of what the next step might be so it doesn't just come total shock and awe right yeah because because you didn't think your career was gonna end i mean but then you're sitting in the hospital you had those two or three years to kind of you know figure it out right yeah figure it out you know what you want to do those Mm -hmm. long thought periods right like we took that walk earlier yeah around charlotte you said those walks are important those walks are important for me i i have to have those that's kind of where I discover my purpose and I reinvigorate that purpose, right? So I wish I wish for the guys out there that for that time in preparation before you get out. Yeah. Because I think it is very important. And no, anybody you know listening to this and about to get out just know that there will be that period where you feel like you're going 100 to 0 and it's going to be tougher for some than others. But purpose is so huge and finding that next purpose. And I promise there is another purpose yes, on the other exactly. side of that, right? Exactly. Perfectly said. Listen, there's a couple things. Not only do I guarantee there is another purpose that you just have to find it. Um, but any of you struggling with not continuing to serve or losing your fellow friends and service members. You have to first 
really think and realize that we all join and raise our right hand because, first of all, no one made us. Mm-hmm. We wanted to serve and, again, commit ourselves and our lives to a, a greater purpose than ourselves or any one individual. Mm-hmm. So no one made them, and they wanted to do it. Okay? Yes, will it always be extremely hard? Will there always be a void? Will you always miss and love them and want them back? Of course. That's normal. That is okay. Again, everyone heals in their own time in their own way. And if you never completely heal, that's okay too. And this is me, this is the, I was forced for many long, painful, and dark nights to to search for any silver linings mm-hmm. that were out there. But instead of focusing on, again, the past and, and what happened and what you can't change, think about, along with your journey of purpose, think about you can now be that vessel to educate, to continue their name. You know, what happened, happened. Why? Maybe we'll know, maybe we'll never know. Mm -hmm. But what I know and what you know is you are still here. Yes. You still have a chance at life. You still have a chance to give your loved ones a hug. You know, it might take you 20 years to get comfortable talking about what you went through. But when that point comes, you have a chance to continue to share their name, to never let it die. So part of your purpose, instead of going deeper and, and, and further down into that dark hole, climb out and look up and ahead knowing that, you know, because of you and you still being alive and you knowing them and have served with them, you can continue on what they gave in their legacy. Mm-hmm. And I think my last and, and kind of final point to wrap this up and, and uh, at least this part is um, whether you get out and go to school or go into the workforce or whatever. Like you said, a girl upset that her Cancun trip got cut short or her 5G cell phone service isn't isn't working right for her to to post on it's Instagram. It's not living up to that 5G normal, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's at 4G with three bars. Dad, I need a new phone. <laughs> no. We're still going to make fun of you even though we tell you it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. But uh, no matter where you go after the service, there will be things, whether you just overhear or whether you are approached, that might be tough moments, okay? So when I started school, obviously I wasn't hiding the scars from anyone. I was a little older. And a lot of people locally in South Carolina, because this was a year and a half, two years before the medal. People still knew my story. 
you know, that guy that got hit with a grenade from South Carolina somehow lived, you know, whatever. I've been in local news, things like that. I got recognized on the um, the state house floor uh, by former governor Nikki Haley, who's so amazing and a, a great friend of me and my family. So, you know, I, I was kind of already out there. Um, and just being a veteran, um, I got approached a lot. And, of course, that, you know, exponentially increased after the medal. But no matter what, very rarely did I get approached with any sort of accurate question or information. You know, obviously these are civilians. Probably the most they've ever done is play Call of Duty, right? Right. And so they would come up and they would say like, oh, you're that guy that won the Purple Heart. Thinking like, well, that, that's a pretty shitty contest, but no, nah, I didn't. I didn't, re- <laughs> I didn't really win, you know. Uh, awesome, first place in the Purple Heart competition. Congratulations! Yeah. <laughs> so you won a Purple Heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come receive your prize. And so, uh, a crappy purple man. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then after the medal, yeah, they would still come up and ask that. And so then at that point, I'm like. Not only are you telling me you don't know what the Purple Heart is, but I'm pretty sure you're referring to the Medal of Honor. Yeah, yeah. You just don't know the difference. But early on, and after, you know, a couple times of this, uh, I had to really sit down and and dissect and and think to myself, uh, how do I want to handle these situations that are inevitable from here on out? Hmm. How do I want to approach them? How do I want to react? And um, I realized that, you know, we all have our story. We all have our journey. We all come from different places. We all have learned things that others don't know. And, um, you know, just like, you know, I can barely add and subtract. Like, I don't know anything about math. You know, there are incredible people out there that can solve any math problem that know nothing about the military or that there's even multiple branches of the military. And, uh, and, uh, actually Andy Stump, you know, just in the past year that I've heard him on a podcast, he sums it up perfectly. And he says, I've done more than some and less than others. Mm. And I had to realize that, you know, they, they're coming to me innocently, just hoping, you know, it takes, first of all, I realize it takes a lot to approach, you know, a veteran and to not really know anything and to, to ask them something and be curious, Yeah, not knowing them, not knowing how they might react. So that, that takes uh, courage, but also, um, you don't know what you don't know and they didn't serve. And so why should I expect them to know the difference between a Medal of Honor, a Purple Heart, or, you know, a Sea Service Deployment Ribbon? Yeah. And so I realized that in that moment, I could get irritated. You know, I could tell them to leave me alone. I don't want to talk about it, whatever. So not only would that give them a bad impression of a Marine, and, you know, everyone's about generalization nowadays, like, oh, well, 
you know, Marines, like I, I approached this Marine one time and he told me to get away from him. Like, you know, I'm, I'm never talking to another Marine again or like, I don't like the Marine Corps, whatever. Um, you know, not only that, I would give a bad image of the Marines and Marine Corps, but I'm not solving the problem of ignorance. I'm mm. not educating. I'm not bridging that gap. So Bro, therefore, yes. I'm not educating and bridging the gap. And also, I'm just setting the next veteran up that they approach for, for failure. Bro, heck yes. I, I, I'm i sorry. I don't want to catch you. No, all good. All good. I the teachability moment. I was just talking about this to a friend of mine uh, who's just a great guy, but he was talking to, about the anger he faces in, as an older generation veteran when he gets asked that question of, well, did you kill anybody? Might seem like an insensitive question. It's just not knowing. I sincerely believe that there are very few people out there that ask questions maliciously. Yeah. I think it's almost always should be commended that they feel the energy to step forward and ask. Yeah. In a, in a, uh, in a not so obvious way, admitting their ignorance. Right. Like why, why would they ask this question if they truly didn't want to know, take time out of their day and that effort to come over and ask, even though they're completely wrong. It's a completely teachable moment. Yeah. And I think, and I was telling him in these mental health conversations that we were having, that we need to kind of reframe the way we look at that instead of, and also instead of seeing this as a gap in some ways, we need to highlight some of the similarities as well. Yeah. We talk about bridging the gap all the time. My president had a moment at this table where we're doing a whiteboard session talking about how we can improve mental health community in the veteran sphere. And he just says... I'm I'm tired of being told there's a gap. And I go, oh, my gosh, dude. Are right. you a genius? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've been working together for six years. He's done all my logo designs, my websites, and all this. He wasn't saying it to put down veterans. He was saying, like, I'm tired of being told there's a gap. I know there's a gap. Can we talk about some of the same thing, things we have in common? And I'm like, man, dude, wow. Exactly. That's awesome. Why am I going to treat a fellow human badly? Because we are brothers and sisters. We all have cells and atoms in our body. And I believe as God's creatures, um, we're asking each other these questions. Why are we going to treat somebody badly for asking a question? You want everyone to know the same things and have the same experiences? I don't. I doubt you do. I I know you don't. Right. Yeah. You don't want anybody to ever have to experience what you experienced. Yeah, and also, man, it, 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 it burns me up when I hear veterans talking about, or service members in general, mm-hmm. talking about how, you know, like, dumb civilians are making jokes that, kind of like I did earlier, but it wasn't a joke. I was being serious that a lot of them only have ever played Call of Duty right, or watched the, the movie. You know, but some will be like, oh, yeah, you know, he thinks he can talk to me because he knows a few terms from Call of Duty or or like whatever it is. And I'm thinking, so you're going to bash them all day long. And then when they come up and approach you and you can fix or in your small part way, resolve the issue and you don't, Mm -hmm. dude, shame on you. Dude, you're complaining about something that you can fix. Yes, <laughs> and 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 um, 
hypocrisy much? Right. Don't we bash elitism in the military? Don't we talk all the time about how you shouldn't make others feel bad about things or, you know, in, in, in that elitist mentality, we complain about the culture right. of elitists, right, right, in the military? We complain about people that look down their nose, politicians, and we complain about people that are obviously not all politicians, but some, and we, you know, complain about those people in those highfalutin circles, but then we do that yeah. to civilians, yeah. and I've seen it a lot, man. I mean, not the majority, of course, but I've seen it a lot, and we need to stop making civilians feel bad. Yeah. Because guess what? You can still be a patriot at home. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you give the opportunity to that person right, to be a patriot? Yeah. And just like you said, in the military and with jobs, like it continuously saddens me that almost every service member that approaches me, they have to start off with either, you know, I didn't go to combat or I wasn't injured or I wasn't infantry or I didn't really do anything. I'm like, listen. What was your job? Well, you know, logistics. Mm -hmm. So because of your job and logistics, you got the medical supplies out of the warehouse, you know, loaded onto the, to the bird or whatever it is that eventually way down the line was the reason that I was able to be saved and make it off the battlefield. They're a minute slower on that order. A minute. 30 seconds. Too slow on that order. And you're not here. Right. Talking to me today. Exactly. You saved a life. Yeah. And above that, no matter what your job is, you joined when so few others did. Yeah. Like, you're doing it. Just be proud of it. And again, don't compare. And, you know... Just know, again, you've done more than some and less than others. And just, you know, be kind to people and, you know, realize that you can play a very positive part in all of this. We, we do live in a culture of comparison, though. And I think the, the military mimics that in a lot of ways. You know, we're constantly yeah. looking on our social media feeds and what's the biggest, baddest thing, you know. And then, you know, we see special forces as like the thing to look up to, you know, or being a Marine, being a ground pounder, doing those things. And so I think we live in this constant comparison culture where we even get stuck in the rut sometimes. But back to what we were saying earlier, I do hope we offer this as a chance for an education to civilians. I just, yeah. if it, I, I try not to have too many opinions just because, and now I have to have more opinions because I'm hosting a podcast. But before with the project, I mean, I don't even know if people even knew I existed really, you know, it's just like, oh, the Veterans Project, it's a thing, you know? Yeah. And so I'm behind it uh, as a founder, but, you know, one of the things is it's, it's about we and not me. Mm-hmm. It's about a community. It's about a collective. I was talking to my buddy the other, you know, my my president the other day, and he's saying, "You always say we when you're mentioning the Veterans Project or our." I said, "That's because what that's what it is. I cannot function without my team. Yeah, I have to have it. I have to have movement. Um, and and without the other collective pieces, we're not able to move. That's true in this country." That's the great foundational principles which we stand upon is we need each other. We need patriots at home as well. 
So when that person asks that question that might sound ignorant to you, maybe it is ignorant, they just don't know. Man, I've asked a lot of dumb questions in my life, my man. I, I, I Ask my dad. Yeah. <laughs> He'll tell you how many dumb questions I've asked. You know, 1,500 last week. Yeah. <laughs> so, man, I, you know, I just, I hope we offer this as a chance to, to educate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I really do. So, Kyle, what, you know, after, what was it like when you're, you know, you're in college and you're going through the experience, you're getting the cool, you know, I'm sure some of it was pretty amazing. You're, you're thankful for every day, right? Yeah. What was the process in the, in finding out about the, the Medal of Honor and being nominated for that? And could you talk a little bit about that? It was, uh, non-existent for years. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Richmond early on those first few months, I did have a buddy that called me and um, I'll never forget. I was sitting, I had had a little day outing from the hospital and uh, I was sitting in a food court of this mall in a sling and um, I was trying to, I was buying just a few clothes knowing I was about to leave the hospital because I didn't really have anything like all I had the past couple of years was my camouflage and my uniform. Yeah. So I was, um, you know, sitting there in a sling trying to eat. And uh, my buddy calls me and he, he says something to the effect of, uh, hey, man, I just want to let you know, you know, we all know what you did. We saw it. Um, and uh, he might have specifically said, like, the Medal of Honor. I'm pretty sure he did. But he just said, you know, we know what you did, and we're going to send it up the chain. But as you know, it takes an act of Congress, not really, but an act of Congress to, you know, get any sort of award or recognition for valor. Oh, that's what it feels like for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, even getting a combat action ribbon, we have to, after our first firefight, we have to come back to the base. We have to fill out this piece of paper that says, date, time, we got shot at, we returned fire with the enemy, and then you get a combat action ribbon. Right. Like, it's not enough that we were out just fighting for our lives for three hours. <laughs> so I heard him, and I it meant a lot that he would not only call, but that all my buddies thought that highly of me and supposedly what I did. Um, but, dude, we hung up the phone, didn't hear anything for over two years. Wow, and two I'm, years. Yeah, roughly. And I'm sitting there uh, years later. I'm still at Walter Reed. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I'm still at Walter Reed. He was there until yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm sitting in this Mexican restaurant called Guapos in downtown Bethesda, Maryland, okay. like a mile outside of the gate. And I'm there with two buddies. And uh, one I talk about in the book at the time, Staff Sergeant Paul Ramirez uh, now he's first sergeant, and I, I pinned his rank and everything, wow. which was awesome. That's cool. Yeah, but he started out as my section leader, which section leader at Walter Reed is just a Marine that oversees your care administratively and makes sure that, like, your family and all that's taken care of. And uh, I'm sitting there with them, and I get a call from a number I don't have. And so uh, I answer, and the restaurant's kind of loud, I think they even had like a little mariachi band going. So <laughs> I answer, and this dude's probably like, man, this guy's in the hospital. It sounds like he's, you this know, dude's partying it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And uh, he must have already found out about the nomination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's Chief Warrant Officer Five Reeves. Okay. And uh, he asks if you know I have a minute to talk. So I go out of the restaurant, and he proceeds to tell me that you know after all this time, enough attention and stuff had come up. And I think the Marine Corps Times uh, had uh, put out an article, and they they did a follow-up. And both articles were good, but the cover of the first one in giant bold letters said, like, you know, did Lance Corporal Carpenter shield a fellow Marine from a grenade dash in big letters or not? You know, Jeez. dude, my buddies were fired up. Were they, they were calling the Marine Corps Times, dude. They were like very upset. Mm. Just to that they saw, and no one else knew, you know. I, I don't really fault them for questioning it because I questioned it. I couldn't remember anything either. Right. But to see someone do that when they were there and they saw yeah, it. Yeah. And to question what a Marine went through and how they saw me, you know, they had blood on their camouflage for the rest of the deployment after that just bleeding out and they sat on post that night and a marine told me like dude like we thought it had rained or something and i was up on post and i realized we were just both sitting in your blood and Mm -hmm. so so just to see me go through that it upset them so that kind of got attention and momentum like going and anyway it led to this call and chief warrant officer reeves introduced himself and he said that the Marine Corps has assigned me. And this is a Chief Warrant Officer 5. This is probably one of the last gigs of his career. They took him from wherever he was in the Marine Corps, specifically assigned him to 2-9 to kickstart and lead the investigation, no matter how long it took or where it led. And so he asked me, I mean, it was short, sweet, to the point. He asked me what I remembered. And I told him, um, you know, nothing that will be of help to you. And I just said, you know, I appreciate your time and effort on this. And um, and he thanked me and said that no matter how this turns out, you know, myself and the Marines of 2-9, you know, we're proud of you. And it was an honor to serve with you. So we hang up the phone. Then I don't hear anything for however much longer, months and months. So uh, fast forward to... So I guess the investigation starts. I didn't hear anything else. Fast forward to um, November. Uh, it was the Marine Corps birthday of 2013. Mm. So I got the Mellon 14, Marine Corps birthday ball, November 10th or around there that weekend. It was the Commandant's birthday ball that, you know, I was in school now, but I traveled up to D.C. to go to the birthday ball. I was invited and because I got close with the commandant and sergeant major, you know, they gave me my purple heart. You know, wow. I, I had a relationship with them. That was a true friendship and not just Marine to Marine. So they invited me up to the ball. And uh, knowing that after I had agreed to go, um, a public affairs Marine reached out to me and my mom. Uh, at the time, she was uh, Captain um, Kendra Motes. Amazing Marine, amazing human being and, and lady. And uh, she just said, hey, I know you're coming up for the ball. Would you mind maybe us grabbing coffee before you head out the next morning? And uh, so from that point and through all of this, I didn't think for one second anything was going to come of it. You know, you got to make a a big show of it. You got to talk about it. 
you do an investigation or maybe, and then it just, nothing happens. Um, And so she kind of told us like, hey, we don't know where this is, the Marine Corps, but it's not, it hasn't been ended yet. So it's still going somewhere. We didn't know if it had been signed by one person or by a hundred people. And there's just so many levels and signatures before it gets to the Secretary of the Navy, then Secretary of Defense, and then only based upon their two recommendations does the president even look at it. And so uh, she just kind of said, listen, we think it's still going over the next few months. And as you go into the next semester of school, you know, we'll just probably be checking in, see how things are going. So we ended that. I went back to school. Um Kept going back to class, and uh, after Christmas and all of January, the calls became a little more frequent, and then it, like, two or three weeks into the semester, uh, so very end of January, beginning of February, we got to a point where it was like, hey, we don't know if this is going to happen, we still don't know where it's at, but... If it's going to happen, it'll probably be sooner than later. And we want you to be as fully prepared as possible for the rollout, Mm -hmm. what they call it. I'm like, okay, well, you know, what about school? It was, I was almost annoyed. Like, you know, I, I, I transition. I'm in this new great point in my life. I'm in school. You know, I'm very honored. But it's like, I got to go back to not having any freedom and being told what to do all the time. The Marine Corps is trying to loop you By back the Marine in. Corps, and I'm out. You know, like, man, <laughs> let me go. Yeah. They weren't joking when they said, once a Marine, always a Marine. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so, um, but, you know, like, I, I, I understood, obviously, it was just a tremendous honor to even be in the discussion for this. Um, but they encouraged me, like, hey, we know that school is your priority. We know you want to do as well as possible. So if you do, you're probably not going to be able to do everything we need you to and take a full course load in, in college. So I'm like, okay, so I have to decide or not to withdraw from my whole semester, lose those credits, not being able to stay a semester in school with all my friends, and do all that and get grilled by public affairs Marines for months to come to learn how to handle reporters who are pushy, to deflect questions, to redirect the conversation on how I want to, if those tough interviews were to come in the future. Mm -hmm. So all this, not even knowing where it's at in the process and if it's even still going. And so, uh, you know, I kind of decided, like, hey, I guess I'm going to withdraw from school. Because if this is going to happen, I obviously want to give it my best effort. And so uh, I didn't withdraw quite yet. And it was so perfect because right before I did, we got word that the president was going to be calling me. Wow. And, like, you know, next Tuesday, whatever, it was an exact minute. And I'm like, okay, I still didn't believe it. Like, until I talked to him, I don't want to withdraw from classes, and I don't really think I'm going to be receiving anything. And so sure enough, I went to class, 
It was the day of the call. Went to class, got out of class, and I drove 30 minutes home to Lexington. And we had checked my brothers out of school at the time. And uh, uh, my, one of my brothers thought that we were getting a new dog, and that was the big reason for getting checked out. And the other one thought that my dad was getting a new recliner or had gotten a new <laughs> recliner. So big priorities in our family. Um, and uh, I get home, and my mom is like, why do you have your nasty shoes on? And the first question I ask is, well, you know, pretty much sorry about my shoes, but does anyone have a phone charger? I'm on 7%. And my mom is like, what? The president of the United States is about to call you, and you couldn't even charge your cell phone? Got a charger, got some juice. He called, and, um, you know, he told me. We talked about school, where I was at, what I was doing. Uh, and he told me that based upon the Secretary of the Navy and the Secretary of Defense's recommendation, you know, he was proud to be awarding me the Medal of Honor mm-hmm. and that um, he was uh, proud of what me and my fellow Marines did. And um, he said he looked forward to seeing me um, later on in the summer. Uh, I don't know if they had an exact date, but later on to uh, at my ceremony at the White House. Mm. So I hung up. Mom cried. My brothers couldn't believe it. I hope they weren't disappointed that we didn't get a dog in a recliner. <laughs> My dad told me he was proud of me. They gave, we, you know, group hugged it up. And uh, I went back to class. Why? I don't know. But I went back to class and then withdrew. And this was like two weeks after, you know, the cutoff, the withdrawal date that yeah. you lose credits instead of just being able to just withdraw. And so I was just banking on hopefully the University of South Carolina would, you know, understand my unique situation and not like hit hit me for those credits. And Special I, privileges, Kyle. Yeah. Unbelievable, you elitist. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But um, but yeah. So they did, and uh, but I still couldn't tell anyone. Wow. And so for that whole semester, I was at the Pentagon all during the week getting like you know molded into this pr person and they did an incredible job like jill wolf uh captain jill wolf i believe at the time and captain kendra motes and the rest of an entire like amazing team they just did so just uh, now looking back even more just a really thorough solid amazing job well, that's an amazing point when you make it because you're dealing with a young soldier, like her marine or a sailor, at a very young age. You know, not all of these guys are these polished special operations soldiers that have done twelve years and right. seven deployments. Right. You know, sometimes you're dealing with the guy who was just flipping burgers at McDonald's like two years before. Yeah. Has little to no formal education. Yeah. And then he's stepping into a position where he has one of the highest honors, the highest honor in the military side, in the land. Yeah. And now you're going to be looked at through a straw. Yeah. Right? So And you're expected to answer every question perfectly. I know. You're yeah. expected to lo- know, learn, and be able to navigate this crazy world where there is zero handbook or instruction. Or forgiveness. Yeah, or forgiveness. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm sure a lot of it was wanting me to do good and help me. And once we established a relationship and they kinda learned who I was and what I was about, 
I think it just fully transitioned to them just wanting to make me be able to be the best recipient I can. That's awesome. But I'm sure at first, you know, it was like, well, if you go on Letterman and say something really stupid, you've kind of ruined it for the rest of the Marine Corps, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so it was probably a nice mix, 50-50 mix of why we were doing all this. But it was so strange. You know, I was in the Pentagon all week. And then, you know, I'd link up. I would fly back Thursday or Friday morning, link up with my buddies, hang out with everybody all weekend, go to hopefully I missed most of my college football games just doing public stuff. But, you know, hopefully going to a football game and everyone's talking about exams or whatever, homework, classes, and I'm getting asked questions. And, you know, that's a big thing you talk about, like how bad school sucks. And so – you know, I, I had to kind of just like lie and I felt bad, but I couldn't say anything. And so I was just a normal college student on the weekends and, you know, a, a, a just Pentagon, you know, like rat down in there, just <laughs> ru running around at different offices and different like training centers and different types of cameras and media teams and uh, just... You know, I even, like, learned some, like, history while I was there. So I, and I taught myself a lot, like, mm -hmm. thinking about and anticipating being able to answer questions. Like, I learned about, you know, really learned, not just an overview, like, historical facts of Marines and military and what occupations were fought on what fronts and how many casualties were, you know, on D-Day or whatever it is, just so I could try to be the best, you know, recipient, like they wanted me to be, that I could. And, you know, I wanted to do it for myself and my family. So there was a lot that went into it. But I was a, I was a fake real college student for a whole semester. <laughs> That's a trip, man. You know, you're talking about, I told you this earlier, but you really do remind me so much of Woody Williams. Uh, amazing compliment. Great privilege of spending four or five days with him on his project. I think we were at the 74th Iwo Jima reunion yeah. in Wichita Falls. It was the Southwest Iwo Jima. I didn't even have a promise of covering him, man. I literally just showed up, drove seven hours. And this is just one of the kind of crazy things I do. And uh, I heard he was going to be there. And I show up and Brent, his grandson, yeah. he was an amazing Brent guy. Casey. a good friend. Yeah. Yep. Brent, amazing guy, says, yeah, of course you can do a project on Woody. Why wouldn't you? You drove all the way here. Are you crazy? <laughs> we could have linked up. Yeah. And uh, anyways, it was this was a couple years ago, and uh, he gives me like you know thirty or forty five minutes in the van with him on the way. He kicks somebody else out of the van, nice. which is really cool. And I am sitting there, and I'm you know asking him questions and all this. And I was just I I I don't know if I'd ever met so polished a person, but. In all his polish, authentic, in who he was, it wasn't a feel of like he's doing this to because he has the medal and he has to. Yeah, is a feeling that it was an honor to him to have that medal, the, the most profound, incredible honor you could have. Yeah, and he carried that with him every day, and I remember him talking about the first medal of honor. Uh, convention ever and uh, in New York and you know Desmond Doss and him were really good friends and you know some of the, the Medal of Honor recipients there were Spanish American Civil War and and First World War guys you know all most of them it's incredible so like, <laughs> to hear that to hear their stories like to, to hear that but just the honor he carried himself with from that first convention on um, to where he is now and still living and kicking and and 
and doing more than yeah. 99% of people. I mean, he travels 250 to 270 days a year. It's he nuts. just turned 97. Yeah. And he's... Um, Thanks for not correcting me earlier when I said 96. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he just turned 97 and uh, he's on this mission and has successfully accomplished most of it. But to put a gold star... A very nice, like massive marble, you know, yeah. engraved gold star monument mm-hmm. in every state. Yeah. He's been doing this for years and years. I mean, think about it. Most people, they fly somewhere on vacation three or four days. They come back. Oh, I'm so tired. Like, I need a week to recover, whatever. 97, and he is on the road. 250 plus days a year Mm -hmm. doing nothing but giving to other people and trying to do good things. And like, you know, he didn't stop when he lost his wife. Yeah. I mean, geez. Yeah. And and you know, that hurt him bad. Oh my goodness. I mean, you know, been with him and through so much, but you know, he's the oldest living recipient. I'm the youngest. I know. And so being, having a special bond with him, but also having like a very, good and true friendship um, because you know I still feel like a complete boot when I walk into the room with those guys like I'm nervous I don't feel like I deserve to be there like you know the first thing I ever went to I was half at the uh, at uh you know parade rest and uh, it's just uh, so it's it's almost just too much to even fathom but you know Woody tells me um that every morning he wakes up I think he said, you know, 530, whatever time. And he does a hundred leg like flutter kicks. Oh, wow. Just to, you know, get him moving before he gets out of bed. And then he wakes up and he's either traveling and giving of himself to others Mm -hmm. or tearing up the streets of West Virginia in his slingshot, (laughs) which is what he drives. Like, man, Woody. Have you seen it? Yeah. Oh, man. Google it, people. Yeah, people, please. Google it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm like, man, say, you know, say something for the rest of us. Yeah. Where you're like, you're, you're killing it out there. Come on, go easy. Take it easy. Go you're easy 97. You're supposed to let up yeah. at some point. And you got a helmet on, whipping a slingshot around. <laughs> and you started out this journey charging Iwo Jima with a flamethrower. Like, <laughs> come on. What am I supposed to do yeah. over here? You, you, the point you're making, though, uh, and the, the point that I was making is the professionalism with which he conducts himself. Yeah, he's you know, incredible. Just the, then I was at the 75th reunion as well, and I, you know, I'm watching him interacting with General Milley, uh, you know, commander of, you know, of, of armed forces. Yeah, and I'm watching him, and I'm like, and not to slight General Milley, but I'm in awe of Woody Williams. Yeah, just the mo- I mean, the most incredible human being. This was the first time, so I was with him, and the first time he'd worn his his dress uniform, his dress blues. Still the originals. Yes, still fits in them. Cr- fits perfect, like Beautiful. a glove. Yeah, he's wearing them. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like the professionalism he conducts himself with is what I'm saying. Is like I admire that in you, in seeing such a young man conducting himself in this way, and I have no doubt about you being in your 90s and still conducting yourself that way because I see it in you. I see that professionalism. And I see those traits and qualities that are following you in that same space. When I walk in, I feel 
when I'm talking to you, I feel like I'm talking to him. And I know that in all your humility, you probably won't take that. But I, I, I just want to tell you, it means a lot to me to, to see you conducting yourself with that. So you've taken, the, you've taken this extremely seriously in the metal and knowing the weight of it. We talked about this a little earlier. Yeah. What is, what is the weight of that? Um, it's, a uh, it's heavy beyond measure and it's a beautiful burden. Mm. And, uh, at the time during my ceremony in the middle of college, uh, after the months of like the prep phase and all of these things, uh, in the moment when the president draped the metal around my neck, uh, you know, I hadn't had that time to process, to really think about what it truly means. Um, all I knew was that it was extremely heavy and real, and uh, my life would be forever, maybe not changed, but impacted. But with time... You know, to to really think about what the metal represents. First of all, and I've known this from the the moment I received it. It's not mine. Mm-hmm. It's not Woody's. It's yeah. not ours, and it's no individuals. It never has been. It never will be. You know that the the Medal of Honor represents. You know. Uh, not not selfishly, but speaking for any wounded warrior, you know, my journey, my pain, my sacrifice. But then you go to my parents who hung on every breath mm. in the beginning and who, while I was wildly hallucinating and losing my mind, took shifts for hours at a time, keeping their hand on my left ankle to try to keep me in reality. It represents the Marines that I was there on the ground with, Dakota Hughes, who the day before we were arguing over what's the best hot sauce. Mm -hmm. 24 hours later, he'll never be with us again. It represents all of those children in Afghanistan that asked me through interpreters, is everywhere in America like Disney World? Completely serious. Can you really go into your home and turn a knob? They didn't even know how to describe it. Turn something and get fresh, clean drinking water? The kids that were born into fear, that lived through oppression, and that died without ever really truly tasting freedom or safety or peace. Mm -hmm. You go beyond that, it represents all of the people around the world, not just Afghanistan, that wake up and whatever their circumstances is, whether it's, you know, they are fearful of guerrilla warfare or they don't have adequate drinking water or food. It represents all the people around the world that wake up hoping that today's sunrise will be a little bit better than the day before. Beyond that, you know, it represents all of our military, 
all of the courage and sacrifice and patriotism that led to where we are today. Those that at 17, 18, 19, like Woody, charged the beaches that they knew that most likely they would inevitably take their last breaths on. Mm. And they charged forward anyway. Beyond that, it represents those that either, you know, that, that not only didn't make it home, but they're guarded today at the tomb of the unknown soldiers. Mm. We can't even tell their family how they gave that last full measure of devotion. And so to think about all of these things, um, the metal is, is too heavy to be put into words. Um, but I will just say, um, and I don't believe it'll get any less heavier, Yeah. even when I'm 97 and hopefully doing something as incredible as Woody with my life. Um, I'll just say that I am extremely humbled and honored to be recognized by my country. And uh, I just hope that, um, you know, I can uphold what it represents and I can be the best recipient and Marine and person and friend uh, that I can. Yeah, well, I think you're certainly doing that right now. Um, what, what about the weight of that is, you know, you were talking to me earlier about the, the time, remember? And we talked a little bit about the weight of that and how even making a decision that's not, that's, that's not only morally right, but also ethically right, and and maybe not even the wrong decision, right? And, and making a decision to work with someone or not work with someone based on the the this metal. What does that mean? You know, because we talked about that earlier. You know, you said you've got to make decisions not only above a standard but above board, right? Right. And and, and knowing that there's a certain weight attached to that, so. I'm sure you could get paid gigs all day long as long as you're willing to put the metal on it, right? Yeah, put the metal on it, wear the metal for the photo shoot for the hour before the event starts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, use my personal platform, which you know, on in the social media world, which I've worked very hard um, uh, to build not because I want followers or I want everyone to know who I am, but I've realized over the years and over much time that, I mean, I love sharing my journey with people, but I realize the power in, you know, while sharing that journey, it helps others. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I'm not saying that like, oh, yeah, I know I'm helping others. It's just over years and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people and engagements, you know, to be told, oh, I love your videos or, oh, it, you know, after what you've been through, you know, to hike to the top of that mountain or, you know, whatever it is to go speak to kids like, you know, you inspire me or the lady that told me in. 2012 that she 
looks at my Facebook every morning to get the courage to get out of bed because her arthritis is so debilitating. Mm, Every morning she looks at my Facebook. So I just, I've realized, and I I didn't know it at first, you know, I just, like I said, I think social media is cool. I love posting my journey. And also knowing that my head took a hit and that one day I might not have, I mean, I don't have the greatest memory, um, but knowing that it's almost like a permanent record of my adventures, of what I accomplished and what I can look back on and be proud of myself over the years. But consequently, in the best way, it does help other people. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to why I said all that is, you know, oh, we just, you know, in this contract, you know, we'll pay you X amount. But, you know, one of the stipulations is we need three social media posts, one a week for almost a month. And, uh, you know, promoting our, and sometimes they're amazing, like, uh, you know, uh, causes for veterans right. or whatever. But, you know, I have to think about so many things that I don't think people realize, like, you know, how will people feel coming to my page for help or inspiration and seeing, you know, hashtag ad, check out this air conditioner company or whatever. (laughs) Or like, um, if I post, you know, something negative or, you know, that isn't so family friendly. Like I have to realize that, you know, children, like all the time I'm getting direct messages of kids sending me like poster boards of projects they've done on me in school. Mm. And so there's just so many aspects, whether it's like the social media or whether it's, um, how will ultimately, how will this reflect on the metal? Right. And how will this influence people's perception of me? And not that I'm not being genuine, like everyone has their personal life. You know, everyone has their things that they're either not proud of or they don't want everyone to know. But um, in the most, you know, I'm still the same person. I just, you know, want the absolute very best for the Medal of Honor and what it represents and the courage, sacrifice, and loss that that comes with the Medal of Honor. You know, I just, I want to uphold that, you know, but uh, it's just, like I said, there's no rule book for it. And mm. it's just trying to navigate and be the best person and the best representative of the Medal of Honor I can. But, you know, there's... A lot of people that want a lot of things, some are good, some are bad, some are frustrating, and some I've had to learn the hard way. Yeah. Um, But, you know, thankfully now, roughly 11 years later, I'm finally, and especially with this quarantine period and COVID, as hard as it's been for everyone, you know, again, trying to see the silver linings, uh, this past year, you know, I've slowed down enough to have enough of a mental break to think about you know, where I've been, where I am and where I'm going, that um, I'm just finally to a point of being confident and saying confident who I am sounds drastic, but just who I am as a 
a person in the public eye and as a Medal of Honor recipient. And, you know, even just little things like, you know, whether it's a big company, whether it's a high school, like another big hard lesson was I, I had to learn that I'm just one person and mm. I can only do so much. And if I'm not good for myself, I'm not going to be good for those I'm trying to help. Because there was years that I ran myself into the ground at all all the time. I mean, I hospitalized myself going through college because I was just so run down. I crashed. I had to go to the hospital. Because for so long, I thought, okay, I'm going to do as much as possible and just be a complete yes man and disappoint as few people as possible. Yeah. But even when I do that, there's still a list of people that I have to say no to. <laughs> so just learning how to say no, not beating myself up, learning what I, what I want and don't want to put on social media. Um, and just, um, you know, like, like Woody, you know, he's had his whole life and, and I'm just getting started, but it's just, uh, you know, there's just a lot that there's a lot that comes with who you want to be in life naturally. Yeah. But then this is just a completely different level. And, um, you know, I've absolutely not been perfect uh, much of the time, many times. Um, but I always try to, to stick to and, and to hold on strong to, um, you know, again, like the past is the past and I can only try to get better, learn, you know, from what I've been through and, and, you know, just always strive to, uh, become the best version of me that I can, which will allow me to at least have the foundation to be the best recipient that I can. Mm, that's important. The book. Got it right here. Um, you are worth it. Building a life worth fighting for. You and, you and I had talked a little bit about, you know, like I said, a couple years ago about kind of the direction you were going. Can you talk about the process of that a little bit and, and kind of what led to this? We got to go to the coffee shop earlier where yep. you wrote most of it and I got to photograph you there, which was yeah. really cool. Thank you for taking me there. What um, what was that experience like for you in, in deciding to write this book? So I graduated school, earned my degree, which was by far like my most proud moment of my whole life. Um, one, just because I did it when I was being pulled a million different directions for every day for those five years. Uh, and two, you know, after the medal and like just everything, you know, becoming only known for the Medal of Honor or the Marine that jumped on a grenade, it was the first thing I had kind of done in a long time that was all me and that not only could no one take away, but no one helped me. I didn't get any handouts. You know, I had to, whether it was, uh, you know, coming back from a business trip or coming back from running the marathon, Marine Corps marathon for the Semper Five fund on Sunday, I still had to be in class Monday morning mm -hmm. and I did all of that and still got my degree without really any help and just me and my determination. And so I was so just super proud of that. Um, and just like leaving the hospital, going into school, I had to really think about 
my last year of school what I wanted to do after I graduated. Mm. You know, was it finally time for a big boy job? Did I want to start a nonprofit? You know, all these things. And a lot of things I would have never thought about, but because I had done so much speaking, so many public engagements, you know, you network, you talk with people. So I'd had my eyes open and, uh, you know, I thought really hard about it. And, uh, you know, over the years, people had mentioned a book and this and that. And um, I just decided for a couple reasons that when I graduate, I don't know how or where I would start. I don't know the process. I don't know one person in the book world. Um, but if I can somehow find a way in, I'm willing to start this project that I had like very unofficially way in the back of my mind thought of like two or three times over the past eight years. Um, and so when I decided that I was willing to write, to, to do this project and, and write a book and see it through to the finish line, then I started really thinking about how I wanted to approach it. Mm. And all I knew was I didn't want just, not just another, because all of them are amazing, and I commend any author or any veteran for putting their words on paper out to the world. But You I, know what that process is like. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't want a book strictly about combat or military. Yeah. I wanted a book that would transcend all boundaries and that, you know, I, I thought of in my head from a CEO to you know, a person living on the street for them to be able to pick it up, not just read it and understand it, but be able to take lessons from it. Mm. And so I thought and I thought and I thought and I thought back over all the moments that impacted me and the people that I talked to and conversations and and connections I made. And uh, I thought about and specifically, one story is, I was at another Marine Corps birthday ball, and a Marine came up, and uh, his rank and his stack of ribbons, which was out of control, showed me that he had probably been in combat since I was in diapers, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but I could tell something, you know, was wrong, and this was a meet and greet line of maybe a thousand people. Jeez. And so there was all these cameras around, and I knew something was up. And, uh, you know, I put my arm around him, and I kind of turned us away so we could somewhat talk privately. And uh, he proceeded to tell me that, um, just like the lady with arthritis, that uh, he did not take his life because of me. And specifically wow. because if I could get up every day after what I had been through and you know, whether it was real or force a smile on my face and continue on every day, he could too. But his was completely mental and emotional. Mm. And then another story I talk about in the book, and uh, like I can barely still talk about this without getting choked up because it was just such like a smack in the face of reality and perspective. And when I was going through school, I just came out of a business meeting in downtown Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, I walked past these two homeless gentlemen. And uh, one of them 
clearly not knowing my background, <laughs> shot me a finger pistol and, uh, you know, said, hey, you know, looking sharp, brother. And they, the two gentlemen clearly, like, you know, were homeless and just kicking it on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'll admit this, and I always have, and I do in the book, and I, I hate it. Um, but especially living in D.C., I was kind of conditioned, like, hey, when you get a compliment from a homeless person, a lot of times, the reality is, it, it's a kind of a precursor to the follow-up question of asking for money, right. right? Yeah. And so I really didn't have any money, um, and we weren't really close to a store. And so I just I, I couldn't have really helped. I mean, maybe I could have, but in that moment, I just didn't feel like I could. So I got... I got prepared for him to ask me that question. And after he gave me that compliment, not didn't even have a home, and he gave me a compliment and a big smile, nothing else was said. Like, he, he just did that mm-hmm. because he wanted to. And so I got to my car, opened the door, but I just could not get in. I was like, you know, two voices in my head were just back and forth, and I was thinking, you know, what if I never see that, you know, nice man again that mm-hmm. took time out of his day just to tell me I was looking sharp? So I wrestled with it, and I thought, okay, you know, is it crazy that I'm going to go back and talk to him and say thank you? And I thanked him, you know, when he said it the first time, I said, thank you very much, sir. Like, I, I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But I, I still kept walking, and I finally shut my door. I went back. And the guy that he was with had left, but luckily my man Kenny uh, had stuck around. Mm. And we sat there for a half hour and just talked. And even though, you know, he couldn't relate to my childhood, how I was brought up, you know, he couldn't relate to all these things. He couldn't relate to the suit and the nice watch I was wearing. But we still sat there and talked like we were old friends. Mm Mm-hmm. And I realized that with that Marine that was emotionally struggling or mentally struggling, and now with Kenny, um, you know, for him to tell me about his, where his scars came from and life on the streets, I realized that, again, it doesn't matter the story. The struggle is what matters. And that the struggle is the one common thread throughout every single person on this earth. I believe more than religion, more than anything else, we have all struggled, we will all continue to struggle, and we can all relate to struggle. Mm. Mine could be from combat, his was from a life on the streets, but that struggle bridged us, and our scars bridged us. And so towards the end of the conversation, I said, hey, man, like, you want to walk down the road? And uh, I don't have any money, but I would love to get you some food and drinks. And uh, he, he, you know, he said he would love that and thanked me. But then immediately he asked for cigarettes. I'm thinking, dude, I, I want to get you food, water, you know, the essentials. Yeah. And you just want cigarettes. And uh, but he was quick to point out that he didn't smoke. I'm thinking, OK, Kenny. Like, why, why, why do you need cigarettes if you don't smoke? And I asked him. Kenny, you're a liar. Yeah, I asked him, and his answer 
like I'm thankful I had sunglasses on because it, it immediately brought me to tears and I just it took a second to process but he said man cigarettes are like gold down at the shelter I can sell each one for two dollars mm. I just thought man like dude that was just so heavy yeah and so uh you know taking some moments like that and really thinking about them you know and realizing that that we all relate to struggle, I realized the direction I want to take for my book. And that was, of course, that I would talk about my military experience, what happened, and give context. But I wanted the vast majority of it. I realized that I could just work on translating the terminology, and I could take everything I had been through and make it relate to anyone that picked it up to read it. Mm. So I just thought really hard for months, like intensely. Like I would wake up at 2 a.m., you know, write, that write down, oh, yeah, that story. I could talk about that story and just change these few words around, add a lesson in, which really did teach me a lesson, but add a lesson in, and anyone, no matter who you are and where you are in the world, can pick it up and be like, oh, yeah, you know, I get what he's saying. Like, I, I felt that too, you know, hopelessness, or I felt, you know, pain or whatever it is. And bam, instantly relatable and instantly not just a military book, but more of a life book. And ultimately, I would just say, you know, not only is it a military book, but I just wanted to write a book that would help and encourage people through their own you know even though it's my story i just wanted to write it like you could almost take my name out fill in the blank and it could apply to anyone so i spent a lot of time thinking about that and uh you know mostly it's just a a, a book um and lessons to help and encourage people through their own struggles and it doesn't preach or teach i hope not i really worked hard on not making it like that it's more just Hey, this is what I went through. This is how I reacted or handled it. Good, bad, or indifferent. And, you know, take it or leave it. And hopefully, like, you can apply it a little bit to your lives and, you know, not only get through your struggle, but come out the other side with a smile on your face. Mm, that's powerful, man. Wow. So as you move forward, um, you know, this model in the book is very important. And I, and I know you said you're not preaching or teaching. Um, and that wasn't the aim. Uh, but I think there is so much to be learned through perspective shifts. You had your perspective shifted with Kenny. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. There's a human connection there. Yeah. We need to stop putting creating these subhuman classes for people and realize that you're one decision away from that. Yeah. We are all one birth or one decision away from entirely different circumstances. Totally. I, I had guys in my unit who were there, um, on the block, you know, yeah. Selling crack. Yeah. Um, uh, making, Worse decisions than somebody who maybe just got there circumstantially, yeah. right? Uh, making intentionally harmful decisions. 
and then meeting them in my unit and then being some of the best soldiers I've ever met. Yeah. So I would say to people, we need to have a little patience with each other. You know, I think that's kind of been the theme of this podcast and this project today has been talking a lot about redemption, yeah, forgiveness, right? Forgiveness for my professor and how she treated people back in the day in those moments in, in Vietnam and going through that. That's disgusting. No person should ever have to be treated that way, especially people that were drafted. Yeah. And I would tell her that now all day. But to come out the other side of that and to, you know, when, when uh, I showed my gallery at the, at the university, I was invited back as an honored guest and, you know, I had my, I had a gallery at the oh, cool. opening and she, uh, she came up to me and she hugged me tears in her eyes and we both cried for a minute because the redemption she'd found, you know, she knows how she treated people yeah. back then and, and, uh, and who am I if I don't forgive that? I don't yeah. realize, you know what? I was a young hothead once. I'm sure I said some things and did some things I shouldn't have done. Now she's helped spawn my, spawn my passion. Mm-hmm. I mean, dude, this is my life. This is my blood. This is my sweat. This is my tears. This is my breath. So, man, you can gain purpose from... Just that human connection. You can gain purpose through Kenny, you know. So, so I think it's such a powerful thing that you've been mentioning, and you know, talking about purpose and in mental health, and talking about you know this aspect of you are worth it. Everyone out there, you know, who, who can, we can give a chance. You know, that forgiveness is a powerful tool, and I, I think that's been an impactful part of your message. So, I appreciate you putting that out there. Thanks, Sam. Kyle, uh, anything else that you wanted to get off your chest? I know we, we, uh, we've done about four hours, pretty solid. Nice. What, uh, what are you pushing going forward and, and, and what's, what are your goals going into the future with, I mean, obviously you got a significant weight on your shoulders, um, but a weight that you've, that you're happy to bear. Um, what are, what are your goals going forward? Well, uh, like most of my journey so far, I didn't know uh, what lied ahead. Mm. I just, um, you know, I thought for so many years every day, and I have no idea like, really what I'm doing or where I'm going. But as long as I work hard, try to do good things and uh you know be good to other people that's got to take me somewhere yeah and so with that said uh even though i've like done all this crazy stuff and um which i'm i'm very thankful that i got the opportunity to and i'm proud of myself for doing it at the same time i'm just really to a point that i'm I'm kind of like, um, not normal, but, um, I'm, I'm back to like where I was when I got out of the hospital. And then when I graduated school, Mm. you know, I, 
what's the next step? And I don't really know. Uh, all I know is that I want to make the biggest and best impact on the world that I can with the precious and short time that I have left. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I maybe shouldn't even say short time because, you know, an hour can be a long time. Yeah. A year is so long if you really focus and work hard and, and try to do good things and put yourself out there. Um, but also, you know, on the flip side of that, you know, I felt I felt myself bleeding out before, and I thought that was it. So although I know hopefully 40, 50 more years is an incredible amount of time to just build and create and live the most amazing life, I still have tasted those final moments. Yeah. And I know how inescapable and and uh just final those moments are so um it's kind of like a perfect balance you know i always keep myself in check thinking about those but also realizing hey i have a lot of time to do a lot of good so i just want to be as efficient with my time as possible and I want to do what I need to to eventually, you know, reach um, a point to where, you know, and and you know, I'm I'm cool with death now. You know, it. Uh, I know it's not only going to happen, but when it does, like when you go out, it's not like you really know. You know, that's right. another that's another part of it. It was as scary as it was. You know, the deepest, darkest, blackest void mm -hmm. of just nothing. Yeah. At the same time, you know, that's it. And so uh, I'm watching the show Vikings right now, and they say, uh, you know, don't fear death. Embrace it like the love of a beautiful woman. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of truth and, like, beauty in that, that if you, if you, whether you're fighting honorably or living honorably, you know, I just want to live my life so that when I reach those final few moments and few seconds and the the darkness is closing in that uh I'm content and I don't I don't you know wish for more time mm powerful you know what you just said there I don't want to get this quote wrong cuz I'll probably have a million navy seals mad at me but uh there's a Tecumseh quote mm. and uh it says when you when your time has come, do not cry. Die like a warrior going home. Sing your death song. That's incredible. <laughs> that's awesome. It's so it's so hard. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so hard. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, dude, that I should be a, that. that should be a Navy SEAL quote. <laughs> I hope I do that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, no. But there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, live your life, live a life worth living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was obviously proud of uh, the life he'd lived, the life of warrior. You know? Dude, yeah. the warrior. The warrior. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Anybody who knows doesn't know history, look that up. Uh, Kyle, 
Uh, it's been an absolute honor, man. We've worked a while to get here, but we finally got there. I saw you at Sornex at uh, Winter Strong. Yeah. And when I turn and you turned to me, and I turned to you, and you were like, "Was it time?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I guess we're going to really do this. Three huh? years? Four years? Is it? Yeah. Let's do it. We got around. Yeah. That's <laughs> I awesome, appreciate man. you, man. I love you, and I, I care deeply about you and, and what you're doing for the community. And you have no idea, man, how much the mental health impact side of it and talking to you about that, the positivity that you preach, you live, and, you know, um, that's powerful for this community because we need more of that. We need more community. We need our guys coming together. We need more of a sense of purpose and the way that you've lived that after being in the darkest moments and the holes that anybody can actually go to physically, mentally, emotionally, you were there uh, for you to provide some perspective. Somebody can come up to you and say, well, I've never gone through that. And it's like, well, you don't need to compare. I've just been there. And so I have a perspective shift that allows me to see that. Yeah. That's a powerful tool, man. So thanks for sharing it. And you don't want to go there. Yeah, yeah. Be, be happy you have not gone there. But, Believe him, he's been there. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I appreciate that, man, and I, I'm thankful that I'm still here and I can tell people about that because, you know, you don't want people to be that down and out. But if I have, you know, been there and done that, which I have, um, at least in the struggle aspect of things, you know, I'm just I appreciate you saying that, and I'm grateful that I'm I'm still around so I can tell people uh no matter what that you know you can you can get through it yeah thanks man uh where do people find your book i'm guessing uh amazon everywhere yeah, yeah anywhere books are sold amazon's probably easiest for you lazy people out there no i'm kidding i i love amazon but uh <laughs> I do too. another cool thing though uh if you didn't know and you're more of a listener um, I read the audiobook version, which you can find on oh, on Audible. I'm so glad you did that, man. Rogan talks about how much he loves when people yeah. read, and it's yeah. true, man. Like I, I, I feel the same way. Like Dude, I one of the toughest things I've ever done. Really? But I'm so thankful, you know, I did it, and now people really loving the personal touch. Uh, I'm I'm glad I suffered through the process, but. Uh, you saw the studio today, right here in yeah, downtown, where yeah. I did it. But uh, that's cool. Yeah, it was uh, it was tough, but um, you know it's amazing now. And another, sorry, one final note, but no, you know another uh, reason for writing this book is just um, to get to get the story of all of us out there. Yeah. Um, anyone who served from any generation. And, um, you know, also, like I said, you know, my memory is not going to be the best one day. And uh, not only do I want to have this as kind of like an official record for myself and my family and my fellow Marines, um, uh, you know, but also uh, just to give credit where credit's due, to talk about my medical teams, my medevac, you know, my fellow Marines, all the people from my internships through my professors at school, all of people. You have your brothers, you, the guys from your unit coming and staying with you in the hospital right over the weekend. Yeah, yeah, we and, about that. and coming, uh, driving five hours on their, on their weekends to my house in South Carolina to help not just spend time with me, but to actively help hours a day my parents, give them a break, and they would do my wound care. Jeez. So just to give credit where Incredible, credit's man. due and um, 
and, you know, just get the good word out about, you know, what our military does for, um, you know, our country, but, but more specifically, you know, being a, a, a beacon of hope, you know, for those around the world. So I just, um, I, I did it to the best of my ability. I wouldn't change a word if I could, which I think is the best way you can feel about a project as an author. But, um, you know, I just I hope it helps. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it will. It helped me. So I'm thankful for that, man. Kyle, thank you so much for uh, coming on. I appreciate your time. Appreciate you being a part of the project. Uh, I'm looking forward to putting this one together. It's going to be, you're a perfectionist. I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be another three years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Tim, when's that project coming? We're both in our 90s. <laughs> I have like whole new veterans projects like on different wars. Oh, that's sad. I don't want to think about that. But um, <laughs> by that point, yeah. we'll be just like zooming around, yeah. teleporting to each other, yeah. zooming around on magic hoverboards. Yeah, maybe that new technology will help me finish the project. <laughs> yeah, right. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for everything you're doing, man. Incredible purpose and mission. Oh, thank you. Well, for those of you who've listened to the podcast, uh, I'm sure you enjoyed it. Uh, we appreciate you. And most of all, don't forget, our legacies are the mission.
This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.